Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast Adventures in Machine Learning. Today it's it's myself, Ben, and Michael Burke. Hi everyone. And today, right before we started recording, we were talking about a a blog that we had discovered written by Shreya Shankar. And we'll provide a link to it in the, the description of the video. But what we found so interesting was when reviewing this blog, sort of the first part of it spiked both of our interests. And we wanted to talk about it today. That, that first part of the blog is talking about how people can potentially review how their approach is to creating a model or a, a applying ML to solving a business problem. And it, it defines this process that is is so uncommon from what I've seen working with many customers over the years and seeing how peers develop stuff as well. It's very insightful. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So one of the first things that, that she describes in this blog post is, is to identify an SLO, a service level objective in the parlance of software engineers, which is how are we actually going to be solving this problem? What is the business use case that we need to apply some logic to and data in order to solve? And I was interested on on your thoughts on that, Michael, about how would you go about getting that that SLO definition? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. So I think the the stereotype for lots of very tech savvy, ML savvy people is you get some data you throw the craziest deep learning model at it possible and then you make it crazier and then you realize it doesn't solve any of the business needs and you go back to linear regression. And what it seems like this blog post is trying to do is reverse that process and ensure that you're meeting some business criteria and solving some business need before you actually start even thinking about the data pipeline or the model. And like when, when we take a step back and we think about it, that makes a ton of sense. But a lot of people try to just apply fancy topics and fancy methods to whatever problem we have. And they don't think about whether this will solve the problem. So one piece of or one, one note that I was thinking about as we think about developing SLOs is it's really important to have alignment within the team on what the goals are for your team and the company. And I think the easiest way would be to make sure that we're moving KPIs in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And one easy way to test this is just run an experiment with the model and without the model and see if we are moving KPIs in the right direction. 
at least that's how I would approach it. But I'm sure there are there are other strategies. What What are your thoughts, Ben? No, 100% agree. Uh, the only thing that I would add to that is for a bit of wisdom from my experience, whenever those objectives are defined, make sure that it's not just isolated within the data science team or the ML engineering team or engineering in general, that whoever at the business cares the most about that KPI, make sure that they're in the meetings and that they say, this is how we define this KPI. This is our accepted measurement of this. And here's the data that we use to calculate that for our data-driven objectives that we're measuring. Is yeah, that'll cover. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah, it covers a lot of ground with just, you can even do it. And the, like the intro part of a planning meeting is to get that person, whoever's high enough up to make a decision. And some of their their direct reports that might be the ones actually calculating it. If you just get that from them in 10 minutes, like, hey, we're trying to move, we're trying to make sales go up or we're going to increase engagement of customers to our platform. How do you measure that right now? And what's a what's something that will actually make you happy if you see coming out of this? And if they come back with, well, we'd love to see a, you know, a 5% increase in sales and here's the formula that we use. And most of those formulas are crazy complicated. If you're talking about business to, cust- you know, to consumer companies, there could be all sorts of calculations that are involved in, in determining, well, is it revenue? Is it net revenue? Is it raw sales? Is it, you know, do we have to think about returns and do we have to think about profit? Like all of these different aspects they're going to have whatever metric that you they want to see actually change. And that that's your SLO. And then in phase two of this pipeline that she's talking about, it says, write the functions that compute the SLOs. And that goes directly into what you were just saying with figuring out when you do that, that, hey, with a model, without a model, which one actually drives our KPIs? The creation of that logic in some sort of callable function is in her list here and something that I agree with, it should be the second thing that you do after you define what that is, build something that measures it. Got it. And how exactly would we go about doing that? Would we just measure what the last week's KPI is and fill that in? Or or what's the thought process around that? Yeah, typically what I do is, let's say we're, we're calculating engagement and there's some complex formula that we're using to query a table or maybe 20 tables. We create this join condition that gives us engagement percentage of customers over the last week. And we make it abstract enough that we can pass in any data set, any subset of our total population, and it'll return that engagement value. When we have that in place, that opens us up for being able to do attribution measurement through A-B testing. We can say, we're going to take 10% of our customers and we're going to expose them to treatment one, 20% are going to get treatment two, and then the other 70% are going to get control. And that allows us to measure that by sending each of those subsets through that function and return that data set answer of like, hey, here's seven days or 14 days or 30 days of engagement data. This is the percentage of engagement. Right. And theoretically, this step shouldn't take much time because if it is a high-level KPI, you no doubt already have code that calculates this value. So hopefully, theoretically, if, yeah, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, 
Um, so yeah, if you do have some sort of KPI measurements already in place, it should be pretty plug and play. It should, it definitely should be. And for established data science teams and companies that have been doing this for a while, that have been using applied ML for a while, you're definitely going to have that either manifested somewhere in a table that's pre-calculated through an ETL process. So it'll just be, hey, select from table where date greater than this date or today minus 14 or something. And it'll be really simple. For a lot of companies that I've interacted with and ones that I've worked at, the definition of these KPIs will vary in the computation between groups within the company. And they're all expressed as SQL statements that are not version controlled or they're just on somebody's computer or in an Excel document. So if, you, if you're in that boat, it's really important to establish that standard in that, that early phase if you have to craft it from, from scratch. And that will just be buy-in from the business to say, here's what we're thinking. You're the experts. Does our math make sense to you and show some examples and stuff. And once you get approval from executives saying, yes, this is how we want to define this for our company and this is the single source of truth, then you're good to go and put it in some abstracted package somewhere that you can call it from your code and make sure it's version controlled. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very glad to have mostly standardized definitions in the places I've worked. But yeah, I, c- I could imagine that it's pretty chaotic across teams. What's really fun is when you're talking about the, the most sensitive measurement that you can ever have in any company is money. And whenever you try to standardize how people look at how successful the business is, you get so much passion and either positive or negative from different groups about them arguing about how do we actually measure the, the performance of our company as a whole, about how much money we're making. If you ever have to deal with that and and endure that, just know that it's going to be painful, but you'll get through it. And you might need to bring in the big guns from high up in the company. I've been in meetings where we're trying to hash that out. And the entire executive council is in the meeting. Everybody with a C in front of their name is there. And they just finally, after hours of deliberation, agree on a standard. And then we just write the logic and code and have somebody verify that it it works correctly. Jeez, yeah. People <laughs> love money. There's there's no way around it. Oh, yeah. And then step number three that she, she uh, elucidates, write the functions that confirm calibrated outputs. Now, this one's pretty interesting. So this is, this is taking fundamentals of software development, where you're saying, this is my integration test validation for the output of my application, my program. I need to make sure that things are working the way that I expect them to, regardless of how much logic is chained from when the program starts till data or information is coming out. I need to make sure that everything works holistically. And that's an approach that uh, some people have I've seen, that's their only means of testing, really. And sometimes it's manual. But that concept of write some sort of validation that your entire program is working correctly before you even get into modeling. And you touched on that when you were describing your process too. Yeah, it's it's an interesting di- sort of dichotomy of strategy um, because sometimes it's just, and like a chicken or the egg problem. Sometimes it's important to think about what models you'll potentially use as you build out these data pipelines and write unit tests for them. But I think starting with step one is, which is defining the objective and the business objective is non-negotiable. But 
there have been cases where I have thought a little bit ahead about the model and wrote data pipelines for specific models. What are your thoughts on that? Because this, the way that she's wrote this, it's, it seems like a pretty objective truth that you should start thinking about the data, not even thinking about think about the model until future steps. But I, I've found that helpful in the past. So it depends on what level I'm I'm kind of working in in a project. So if my focus is entirely on the data science aspect and I don't have to do any ETL and I don't have to do any serving. So the output, the raw output of the model is the only thing that the like groups actually care about. Then that's what I'm going to focus on is just saying, here's my expected collection of features in this format. Like, hey, it's, it's from this source system. So I know I'm getting a data frame representation. Or it could be, hey, I'm getting this from a streaming source system. Like the, the actual inference data is going to be coming from Kafka. And I know it's going to be an array. So I'll build the, the highly abstract interface as a placeholder just say, I generally know what the structure of this data is going to be. I know I'm, I'm dealing with images. I know that I'm, I should be writing something that reads image data from some location that I know it's going to be. But apart from that, all the way to the output of the model, everything internal of that is just abstraction. So I just basically read a wrapper around that uh, about where the model will eventually be. And you can mock it up to say, hey, we have a classification task that we, we, it's a binary classifier. We're either producing true or false. This thing happened or, or this thing is going to happen or it's not going to happen or based on the data coming in. My placeholder model is basically that, that class and the method within that class that's eventually going to contain some ML logic is just returning true or it's, I'm doing a coin flip random selection, either true or false. So there's no real logic in there at all. It's just returning data that I expect. Internally, in that abstraction of that model, I could be doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, I could be having a deep learning model later on if that's what the, the accuracy requires or the complexity of the problem requires. But that output is going to be transformed into a Boolean. Now, if I'm doing soup to nuts, everything, like, hey, we have to do data collection from raw source systems all the way to... We need to create a REST API that an app is going to use or a system is going to query. Then I'm certainly not messing around with even that level of abstraction around where a model is. I'm more concerned about the data pipeline. And when it comes out of the ML module, all that other stuff like, hey, how can I load test this to make sure that my SLA is going to be fulfilled and validate that my architecture is correct? Yeah, that makes Really, really, really good sense because the you, you don't really need to think about the model. You just need to think about the inputs and the outputs of the model. And then once you have that structure, you can do whatever you need to do in the following steps. But that gives you enough of a framework to build around um, and, as you said, create a wrapper. So that makes perfect sense. Yep. And, and a lot of people that I've interacted with when I've talked to them about similar workflows for project work, they've come back to me. They're like, well, I need, I might need to use a logistic regression. And that gives me, when I use predict prob A, it gives me a, an array of these binaries. And then I can't just pass that to the, the final system. And I always try to demonstrate to people that, hey, we could take that output of the model and we could transpose it. We could perform a, 
a transformation on it to convert it to a matrix object. We could create a tensor out of it. We could start doing all sorts of crazy stuff with the logic in order to augment the results that come out of it. But by the time all of that crazy processing is done, it's still just a Boolean on the outside. So you can abstract whatever complexity you want in the implementation details, and that can change over time. And that's the other benefit of defining this this way is you're not exposing to your to your basically your API contract, which is each of your modules when you have a return coming out of your main method from a module, that's your contract. And that should not change for your use case. And that defining that SLO and making sure that this this step three, this confirmation of calibrated outputs, when that's all in place, it's going to be really challenging to refactor that and pivot to something else. But you shouldn't have to because you can abstract away all that that other complexity. Yeah, that's that's exactly the point that I was going to make is that if you start with SLOs, your inputs and outputs should be pretty fixed. And transforming a probability into a binary is almost part of the modeling step. Yep. So yeah, by starting with the SLOs, it gives you the framework that you need to write this wrapper. Exactly. And then at step four, uh, she defines write all the components or stages of the pipeline except the model training evaluation. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that stage. Write all of the components without the model training slash evaluation. Now, that's a really interesting point. So she states that SLOs will be almost an evaluation metric, like recall, like recall over a monthly window, and it should align with KPIs. So I guess we've already sort of defined that, and we don't really need to write that code until the very end. So the logic flows. Again, it all, it all hinges from step one, which is if we create a really robust framework, including whatever accuracy measure we're using to define success, then, yeah, we can build it in any step that we want. Does that make sense to me? What about you? Yeah, the, to go on on further with that, the components of the pipeline, the way I interpret that and the way I've always tried to do it is we have multiple stages in, in building an ML solution from data acquisition, data validation, could be monitoring and logging in there. And then you have feature engineering, creating all sorts of crazy stuff that hopefully makes sense for the final solution. And then some model and validation of that model's training. And then we have post-processing logic, which is generally business rules, or how do we handle failures in prediction, or if the prediction just doesn't make sense based on how we understand the world, we need constraints on that. And then supporting stuff like divvying up different groups to say, hey, you get these different versions of this prediction in order to do testing. So each of those components is is uh, is a different aspect of, of that entire pipeline. And I like that idea of saying, we're going to write that module. We don't have to define everything in it, and we're going to make it so that it's flexible enough that we can not only change it in the future, but make it so that we can test it. So if we write a like a feature engineering pipeline in a modular and abstract enough way, it doesn't matter what data it is that's in there. We could be passing in four features or 400, but the way that our pipeline should be built is to support that mutability and the ability for us to do validations through unit testing and monitoring as well. 
So if we don't have that ability, when that thing goes into production and it falls on its face, good luck troubleshooting why it went wrong. These things are super complicated. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that the these steps so far make a ton of sense. Yeah, and I really like the process. Yeah, and then step five, she goes into do careful exploratory data analysis to write pipeline components that clean data, select features, etc. And this is another thing that I think is relatively rare in a lot of groups that I've interacted with over the years is doing that sort of old school statistical analysis, EDA, on feature data of saying, hey... Yeah. I have this feature that's coming in that I want to use. I think it's relevant because I've talked to business subject matter experts and I need to know what is its distribution? How many nulls does it have? What happens when the data is, is corrupt? When there's a, this is a, a continuous double that or float in this column, why do I have a negative 9999999 sometimes? And how do I handle yeah. that? How do I change that or fix that? Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Yeah, that, that's a really, really good point. And I also think it's pretty rare when, when doing any modeling project really Two points to that. The first is that one of the greatest Kaggle competition hacks is to bring in external data and do your own feature engineering. And that's sometimes frowned upon, sometimes not, depending upon who you ask. <laughs> but often if you can go spend, let's say you have 24 hours to build the best model ever. If you can spend half of the time that you're going to work on getting really, really good data from maybe external sources or maybe just transforming the data that you have, it can make a world of a difference. Mm -hmm. And that leads into the second point, which is starting simple. And that's a following step. But if the relationship between X and Y is fundamentally linear, a linear model will outperform a the craziest deep learning model that you can find yep. if the relationship is fundamentally linear. And you can easily explore distributions with QQ plots. A simple histogram, pandas.describe is a wonderful tool. And so th there's all sorts of things that you can use to educate yourself about what approaches to take. And that can then inform not only your modeling choice, but how you engineer your features. And I think that's what she's hinting at here is that you're only, your model is going to be only as good as the data that you give it. Yep. And so it's really important to have some intuition and understanding about what data should be given and what data should be excluded, cleaned, et cetera. And a point three to add on to that, those two excellent points, is during that process, you're defining code that you're going to be using to do cleaning. And that code should be abstracted as part of your inference pipeline. Whether you're doing batch or real time, doesn't matter. But if you have a model trained on clean data 
and then you're trying to do predictions on it and you pass incredibly wrong data into it that's like invalid like rows of data the model's going to do some crazy stuff particularly with a, a linear model if you have a a coefficient on a term that is dominating the rest of the terms and then it's it's training data space is in a range for a float between you know one e to the negative 16 and 10 and then all of a sudden some bad data comes in somebody misconfigured something on on the front end and bad data got sent to this particular feature and the value is 10 million what's that linear model going to do <laughs> it'll predict a really big number something that's probably way outside the scope of what you were expecting and it could be larger than the max numeric space that you can actually display. So having all that cleanup data, or that cleanup code to say, here's the things that we had to remove from our training data, and here's all of the processing that we need to do, and embedding that logic into both training and inference is going to help out a ton for production stability. Yeah, that's a really good point. And this is something that I've been learning the hard way, is that often the best modelers at a company are those that do take these EDA steps and use very simple approaches. Uh, simple approaches are cost-effective. They tend to not produce really weird results if you have clean data. And they also produce pretty stable results that don't overfit the training data. Yep. And so while you might be tempted to throw crazy models at, at a given problem, if you're in the business of creating good models that generalize, that don't exhibit drift, that can last for years and years, uh, simple tends to be better. And there's more initial elbow grease, but then the modeling step itself is a lot easier. I could not have put that better, man. Like 100%. There are t you know cases and times where you need to use PyTorch or TensorFlow, or you may need to use some cutting edge implementation of an algorithm that is somebody just published in a white paper six months ago and there's no real solution out there for it but those are so insanely rare in industry that you actually have to do that but people get to that point so an experienced data scientist who's or modeler who's building these things they've already gone through 12 simpler models before they got to that level we're saying actually we need a generalized adversarial network and we need to do some reinforcement learning here in order to get something that can solve this problem. But they've already tried tons of different things, and it just wasn't yeah, exactly. good enough to meet that SLO. Exactly. And just one more point on that, maybe reading into some, some psyches a little bit too much, but I think it's based out of insecurity with your modeling abilities and your position in your company. Often people falsely think that throwing the biggest and baddest thing at a problem shows that you're technically capable. But I've found that the more experienced people tend to distill problems into much simpler problems. And from there, use simple methods and solve a problem a lot more effectively. And sort of big, bad things can hide your, your lack of a true understanding of the problem. So obviously, this is not a absolute truth, but it it is an interesting trend that I've observed. It doesn't just exist in data science either. Like that, that happens in software development as well. You'll know who's a, a risky developer if, if they're the only one that can explain how their code works. If you strip out the comments and ask other people to explain, they're like, I, 
if you give them five minutes and say, hey, can you explain this class or this this method? And they're like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a principal engineer and I cannot understand just glancing at this, how this works. That's bad code, like really bad code. And in ML, it compounds. So 100% agree with what you just said. Is And your assumption, I think it's pretty spot on from my experience. It's usually people that are trying to flex, that are building uh, the craziest, most complex things. And with and usually it's people that have never had to maintain production code. Because if they have to maintain it, they certainly wouldn't build that nonsense. Yeah, I was about to say, if, if they went through the pain of making sure the model doesn't break, I'm <laughs> sure they would, they would write simpler code for sure. Yep. And then number six is the big elephant in the room for a lot of teams. Some data science groups have an ML engineering team that they can pass off their, their POC to. Sometimes companies will hire consultants to do this stage. Other times it's the data scientists that have to do this and they have to take a hat off and put a different hat on, which is maybe data engineering or could be just pure software development. And this stage is productionize all of the above stages. So I'm curious what your experience is with, with how you approach that. If you see like a proof of concept that's, that you've built out that is very simple going along with what you said earlier, like, hey, it's a linear model because there's a linear relationship between the, these top six most important features. So I'm keeping it simple. How do you take that POC, which, which could just be a script in a, like a Jupyter notebook that you're just proving out this approach? How do you take that into production? Yeah, that's that's not a that's a tough question to answer in absolute terms. <laughs> I think Definitely. it differs a lot by company size, by your tech stack, by the roles of people. I can speak from my experience in that we tend to. So I work at a company called Tubi, very data driven uh, streaming platform, and we have about three or four hundred employees. But our data science team is still pretty small and we mainly focus on decision science. Mm -hmm. And so that means interpretability and stakeholder interaction is at the forefront of what we do. And so often we just go with the simplest approach that won't break. <laughs> and this is like we sometimes you need a full blown like nightly job that retrains and does a bunch of tests and checks for drift, et cetera. But oftentimes just throwing it into whatever dashboarding service you have, adding some uh, little Python script at the bottom, that's enough to provide a ton of value for stakeholders and taking it from 95%, which is the thing I just described, all the way to 99 or 100%, that's like twice the work. So leveraging the 80-20 rule, just keeping some MVP prototype in a Jupyter Notebook is a pretty damn good solution. And sometimes you, you do need a really robust production pipeline. But again, if you like just value your time and you'll, you'll keep things a lot more simple. Yeah, it, it really depends on how important that, that output is and what your SLA is to match up to that SLO. You know, if you're, if you're doing something that's internal use and it's like, hey, the business teams that are making decisions on like for your industry, like, hey, people that are making decisions on what content to put on separate streaming channels, we need to know what viewership is or the prediction for number of hours viewed in the next 48 hours, something. I don't know if you have use cases like that, but for instance, that sort of thing, if it's internal use 
And it's a dashboard that is reporting this data so that people can make informed decisions that are based on data and forecasts. Yeah, you don't have to go and go nuts with crazy like, oh, we need this active retraining system and we need to do attribution every hour. And if it drifts by more than 5%, we need to trigger asynchronous retraining. Then we need a blue-green deployment. And you don't need that stuff. You know, there's a certain amount of wiggle room that the the people that are looking at that data, they're going to interpret it. They're going to take their own knowledge of that domain and say, oh, I can, maybe there's an issue here. And I'm just going to let the data science team know that this one thing that in this prediction over the last couple of days just doesn't look right. You have a little bit of time to go and fix it and push a change and validate that everything works. But that other side, some place that I see some smaller companies kind of get in over their heads is not approaching it the way that you described. And it may be a team of five people or four or three people, and they read some blog post published by a fang company, and they want to recreate that that magic in their team. They're like, oh, geez, we, we want to do kind of something similar to what they did, but we need real-time services. We need quadruple nine uptime because this is going to feed directly into the app. And this is going to be a, a fully autonomous system. It needs to, to detect in real time when there's, there's issues with it. You're never going to get it done with a small team. So it's about like as part of that phase one and exactly what you just said, understanding what your business is, what your team composition is, what your architecture and deployment is, and what your business is ready to take on from a complexity standpoint when we're talking about ML. Exactly. And a really good proxy that uh, we leverage is what happens when something goes wrong or the model breaks. If it's internal facing and you mostly work in decision science, someone complains and that's that. If it's external facing and you're giving it to clients and making money off that model, whole different ballgame and reliability becomes the paramount thing, almost over accuracy. So just thinking about what happens if that model breaks or produces weird results is a really good way to determine how important the reliability component is. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum. And I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. Yeah, and it dictates the scope of your project, which in my opinion, that, that scope is step zero in this pipeline. I think that's the only thing that's really missing is once you have that discussion with SLO, having that that team-based discussion to say, can we actually do this? Like, how much time do we have available to tackle this? And how much money is this going to cost the company? Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah. That's, that's a good point. What's going to happen if it blows up? Because like it or not, even simple models, I've never had one that I've built or been involved with that is perfect. That just never, like, there's never any issues with it. There's always things that, that go wrong. You're always improving it. You're fixing bugs. You know, something weird happens with the data. Or maybe you're, you're serving architecture that's creating the, 
the predictions, maybe there's a version upgrade of the like the operating system or software packages. It's going to break at some point. And how do you design around that? How do you feed dummy values if that data has to be there at all all costs? Sometimes it's take that early stage, very simple decision logic that you built, and that's your default to serve up instead of it going through the model. Yeah, exactly. And then number seven uh, in her list is basically what you said, how you how you build models. And it's very similar to how I do them as well. Just train and evaluate a very simple model. Uh, from that simple decision, if else statement you did to mock up some data, replicate that with a logistic regression model or a linear model or a decision tree. Something that is super easy to build, super fast, and you can explain it really easily. Exactly. And also one point that I think uh, she's hitting on with this, this strategy is that incremental improvements are really an effective way to go about any project. And sometimes it's like from a motivational perspective, it's hard to go from zero to a hundred, but if you take it five, 10, 20, 50, then a hundred, um, it's a lot easier to stay on task and stay focused. And also it almost serves as like a versioning problem. So if suddenly you get dragged away to another project, you do have something that you can push out if needed um, and something that you can fall back on. A hundred percent. Yeah. And the other benefit of it is as you're doing that incremental, you're like, hey, version one of this model is a decision tree classifier. Like we can explain that visually. We could just print out the tree and people can see where the splits are. We can create a very simple visualization that explains it. And then, hey, maybe our accuracy on that, you know, our area under ROC is like 0.84. On that version one, if that goes to the business and they were expecting something above 0.75, mission accomplished. Uh, You can ask them like, hey, do we need to improve this right now? Or are we good to go turn this on to production and and just run with it? And if the business comes back and says, no, we're good, then awesome. That's a a win-win. You're solving the business's needs. You're making them happy because they're your internal customer. And you're able to go and do other things. And what you're left with is a much simpler implementation that is so much easier to maintain than worrying about retraining with a cluster of GPUs in order to get your your total training time down so that you can have your model still stay relevant. Exactly. And this can also sort of serve as an EDA step. I know she said productionize prior to or EDA, then productionize, then start building. <laughs> but simple models that are very interpretable give really interesting insights. So they can provide it, like ideas for iterating on your feature pipeline that some black box may not be able to do. 100%. I'm curious to know, have you ever worked on a problem where you, you built something like a decision tree and you're looking through relationships of the data and you're like, hey, this seems really weird that our business does this. I'm going to go talk to somebody in operations or, or something. And that actually changes the way the business behaves. Yeah. I mean, it's more like discovering bugs than <laughs> changing business logic, but I'm sure and give me a, a few more years and I'll dramatically change company strategy at some point. I mean, it's bound to happen. Bound to happen. It's happened many times for me and I've worked with teams where a very like junior data scientist, somebody three months in on the job, but they're they're using sound foundational techniques of like statistical analysis. And I've been in a room with somebody who's done that and they're like, hang on, this doesn't make sense. 
why do we allow customers to do this with our goods? Because this is why the model is predicting this weird result. And then go and meet with them two weeks later. And they're like, yeah, I talked to our, our chief operating officer and did up a presentation with this data. And yeah, apparently we're changing how we're doing that with our business. It's like, great. You didn't even build the model in production and you saved your company $55 million a year. And then you, you meet them a year later and you're like, oh, so you're the lead data scientist now. Like, yep, did the same thing that, that we talked about five other times. And people seem to find that valuable. Yeah, dumb questions are the best questions. Well, in, in data, there are no dumb questions. When you're doing that analysis, you're bound to find stuff that just doesn't make sense. And sometimes that outside perspective where you're actually not an SME and you're looking in on that data, and you're like, hey, something doesn't make sense. And that's how you uncover it. Because people that are very familiar with it, and they're sort of ingrained in that business mode operation. They're not seeing those issues. Yeah, 100%. And the final stage is what we've been talking about the whole time in her pipeline, which is incrementally improve on the model. And yeah, I, I think that's a recipe for success. Yeah, I completely agree as well. In incremental work is the best way to work, in my opinion. And there's very rare cases where you know from the onset that you'll need the biggest and baddest tools. So often you'll discover things along the way as you build more complex models. And you'll eventually reach a stopping criteria, which is probably less complex than you would have anticipated. So simple, simple trumps complex almost every time, in my opinion. Definitely. Yeah, this is a great discussion. It's one of those talks that I wish somebody had given me 12 years ago when I was just getting started into this stuff. And yeah, it's great that this information is out there and that people have learned this stuff the hard way. And I think it's with enough people paying attention to this, this paradigm of development, I think that risk of project failure that everybody talks about all the time with ML is going to start shrinking more and more over time. People start focusing on, hey, think of data science work or ML work as as like a commodity almost. Like, hey, we're we're solving problems using tools that we have at our disposal. But just like software engineers that are really good when they're developing code, they're trying to build the simplest, most maintainable thing possible. Exactly, hundred percent. All right, so that's it for this week's episode. It's a pleasure talking through all this and we'll see what our, our next discussion is going to be. It's going to be something similar to this and, and uh, hopefully going to be something as insightful as this was. I, I can personally guarantee it will be more insightful. <laughs> It'll change your life. You better show up. <laughs> all right. So till next time, this was Ben Wilson and Michael Burke and take it easy. Bye everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.